From the studio of KPSU Portland and in association with the Department of History at Portland State University, this is Beyond Footnotes. Join us as we explore public, local, and world history through discussions with professors, authors, fellow students, and alumni. Thank you for joining us. This is Beyond Footnotes. I'm Lindsay Smith. I'm joined today by Joshua Justice. This is the first official episode of Beyond Footnotes with me as your host. I'm proud to be here. It was a journey to get to this point, and I am grateful to PSU History Department, Joshua, uh, KPSU, and my guest for making this episode possible. Thank you all. It is a, a challenge following the work of Joshua and Ryan, but I accept that challenge and hope to do the podcast to justice. Nope, <laughs> pun intended. Uh, <laughs> Please feel free to contact me on Facebook or Twitter with any comments, questions, suggestions concerning the podcast. The social media is consistently monitored and updated. For previous episodes and extended content, check out soundcloud.com slash beyondfootnotes or kpsu.org. Ratified on uh, July 9, 1868, the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, among other things, defined for a battered nation what made a citizen and mandated that states could not restrict the privileges or immunities granted to citizens. Section 1 of the 14th Amendment reads, All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. The 14th Amendment was and remains at the center of struggles for civil rights. Minorities, people of color, women demanded equal rights on the grounds that they too were citizens of the United States. Unfortunately, the privileges or immunities of citizens were often restricted or outright denied. Our focus today is on legislation restricting the rights, privileges, and immunities of women in the U.S. Um, When I began researching this topic for today's show, I was surprised by the number of laws and court cases in America's history that denied voting, working, and reproductive rights to women. I had always known about the women's suffrage movement and debates on the legality of abortion practices, but I did not know much about the birth control movement or legal labor restrictions. Even the 14th Amendment only truly protects male citizens' right to vote refer to Section 2 for that text. In 1873, Myra Bradwell was denied a license to practice law by the Supreme Court of Illinois. Her application was denied because, quote, as a married woman would be bound neither by her express contracts nor by those implied contracts which it is the policy of the law to create between attorney and client, end quote. But the court didn't stop there, arguing that quote, that God designed the sexes to occupy different spheres of action and that it belonged to men to make, apply, and execute the laws was regarded as an almost axiomatic truth, end quote. So the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the Illinois court's ruling on the grounds that the 14th Amendment did not protect an individual's right to practice law. The states are the final say in who is issued a license. Further, some judges agreed with the opinion that men and women occupy different spheres and that practicing law is not in a woman's sphere. In the case of the Illinois Supreme Court, when the English common law under King James I was imagined, which is what the Illinois legal system is based on, the idea of a woman barrister was, quote, preposterous. 
Um, Muller versus Oregon in 1908 restricted women to a 10-hour workday. While that might seem like a longer than average workday to many people listening, that was shorter on average to the workdays of men. The reasoning was that, quote, the physical well-being of woman becomes an object of public interest and care in order to preserve the strength and vigor of the race, end quote. This case implied the physical weakness of women in comparison to men. Interesting note, Muller in this case was the owner of the Grand Laundry in Portland charged for violating a 1903 law. He was defending his rights to freedom of contract that he felt the 14th Amendment protected. You see the irony? For decades, advocates for both birth control education and use, like Margaret Sanger, were arrested due to laws forbidding the discussion and distribution of such, quote, obscene materials. The professionalization of healthcare and the consequences of illegitimating certain practitioners, such as midwives, the practice of eugenics and laws mandating sterilization, arguments over the roles uh, states play in, in lawmaking and restricting or protecting the rights of its citizens, underlying political and social agendas all add to the story. Workers' rights, voting rights, reproductive rights, and other civil rights were constantly on trial in American history court cases and legal discussions continue. Both men and women exist on either side of each legal move, each political and social movement. So many examples from every state can be referenced here. This is a very complex subject that can be approached by any number of angles. Today, we'll be looking closely at the relationship between the legal system and women's rights in American history. In this episode of Beyond Footnotes, I interview a graduate student in the History Master's program here at Portland State University. Tanya Monthe is a second-year graduate student studying modern American legal history and women's history. She completed her undergraduate degree in history with a minor in Indigenous Nations Studies at PSU, graduating in 2015. She is expected to graduate with her master's degree next summer. Welcome, Tanya. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Let's begin with some information about you, Tanya. Please tell me a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you're from. How did you get to be a PSU history graduate student? Yeah, so I started the master's program last year. Um, I kind of made the decision late in my undergraduate career. I grew up in Wyoming, and I moved to Portland in 2011. And I kind of always had the plan all through growing up. I'm just gonna, I like history, I guess. You know, um, you're a history major too. Probably whenever you tell people that you're studying history, the first thing they say is, oh, are you gonna teach? Oh my god! And then definitely that was my plan until really I'm, I don't like kids. So maybe that's not the best career path for me. I, I really do enjoy history. I love legislation. So I kind of made the decision to continue on with my master's degree. And I love all the professors at Portland State. So I thought I would stay local. <laughs> awesome. Yes. Uh, if I had a dime for every time <laughs> I was asked that question. Um, and then when I get when I tell people I'm studying public history, they're like, oh, I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested in law, so I want to go to law school after this. And they're like, oh, I, yeah, they're surprised like, that <laughs> there's so many applications of history. Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, how did you choose your thesis focus? What were some of your influences? Uh, why do you think it's important to study this topic? Um, so what first 
piqued my intrigue is when I learned that Oregon is the only state in the union to not have any restrictions on the abortion um, procedure at all. And I don't particularly see Oregon as that unique of a state, so I really wanted to look more into activism, women's activism, what particularly makes Oregon a state where this is possible. Um, For example, what kind of political leaders were in view of the public? What kind of things were they saying during the women's liberation movement in the late 1960s, 1970s? So, and also what makes Oregon unique too is their relationship to midwifery and their professionalization of midwifery. So really, Oregon is a pretty progressive state regarding women's choice to birth and to reproductive choices in general. So that's where my interest was peaked, definitely. looking into the relationship between women and the state and how they're viewed by the state and their citizenship and what all that entails. Thank you for sharing that. I have a quote here from Criminal Operations, The First 50 Years of Abortion Trials in Portland, Oregon. This is Michael Halquist, and this is from the Oregon Historical Quarterly. Quote, much of the early history of reproductive rights in the Pacific Northwest and women's roles in the efforts remains unexamined. It can be argued, however, that an understanding of the conflicts over reproductive policy are as important to women's and the nation's history as the struggle to achieve women's suffrage and other rights of citizenship both arenas deserve further analysis, end quote. Your current research mainly concerns the birth of abortion legislation, particularly in Oregon, right? Correct. Please explain a few of your findings so far, along with some reasons why such legislation exists. So abortion legislation is fairly new in American legal history. Before 1800, no state in the union had any restrictions on the procedure with common science. It's kind of hard for us to imagine a notion that women didn't think that they were, there was a notion of quickening, which is when you could feel the fetus move inside of your stomach, which is usually around three to four months. So women did not think or know or acknowledge that they were pregnant. Before that happened, women just thought, oh, I'm not having my period. So what they would do is they would go to a midwife or to their female family members, a local physician, and they would, quote unquote, unblock the so they could restore their period. And so before this, I was just common knowledge, common practice, and really the option of pregnancy and birth was left solely up to the woman and her family. And what happens in the early 1800s is that physicians feel threatened by midwifery, by the reliance on females, on their female um, companions, in pertaining to birth and abortion. So to rid themselves of competition and to kind of elevate their status as physicians and as specialists, they work with the American Medical Association to lobby for legislation to outlaw abortion. Even in the early abortion legislation, quickening the quickening doctrine is still used to prosecute after quickening. And if you end a pregnancy, then you can be prosecuted. So quickening is still a really important factor in early legislation. Um, Oregon actually passed their first 
abortion law in 1854 when they were still a territory. And then they conservatized their abortion legislation in 1864 when they became a state. So really that time period between the first abortion legislation in um, Oregon and to Roe v. Wade in 1873, um, it's important to notice that though abortion was outlawed, it it was still a common occurrence. But since the beginning of time, women have always sought to control their reproduction and legislation doesn't stop that. And so Michael Helquist, who you mentioned earlier, he does a lot of work about the criminal operations and um, well-known abortionists in Portland. One well-known one is Dr. Ruth Barnett. She had a really thriving practice in the Broadway building on Southwest Broadway in Portland. During her career, she did um, she provided over 40,000 abortions to women and she never lost a woman. So it really just shows that though there's kind of this myth of the back alley abortionist and you know the dangers of illegal abortions, and that's very true. A lot of women died during this um, period when it was completely illegal, but also there were well-known abortionists who weren't hiding their practice at all, which is interesting as well. So Oregon passed their abortion law in 1854, and by 1880, every state in the union had a restriction on abortion. That's interesting. One of the arguments against abortion is the, the risk factor, right? Women passing during the procedure, but in comparison to women passing during childbirth, it can't it's is it similar? The, it's the same um, risk factor, um, blood clots and you know complications. So nowadays with science and all of the advances, it's the same risk. Do you think that there was a period there where uh, abortion procedures could have been advanced had the legislation not been so strict? I feel like in the decades before Roe v. Wade, there were still technological advances um, in the form of the tools and the techniques that were being evolved by the people giving women the procedure. So whether or not it could have been advanced more in that time period, I couldn't really say. Um, But around the same time where states started to liberalize their abortion laws, that's the same time period where the techniques were being perfected, definitely. In Oregon, how does the uh, legality evolve? How did we get from it being outlawed in 1854 to now it's legal? When did it become legal? So it became legal in 1973 with the Supreme Court decision Roe v. Wade. Um, But actually, Oregon had started to liberalize its abortion um, legislation in 1969. They liberalized it so it expanded exceptions for women seeking abortion, such as if um, it put the mother at risk or if it was product of rape or incest. So they expanded the legislation for more women to be allowed to to have access to the procedure. And actually in 1971, um, the well-known Oregon Supreme Court Justice Betty Roberts, she was still a senator at this time, but she um, co-filed a civil suit in 1971 against the state of Oregon to, similar to the Roe v. Wade case, to challenge the constitutionality of these um, abortion restrictions. By the time that that lawsuit did reach the Supreme Court, Roe v. Wade was already decided, so it was dismissed. So 
around that time period in 1969, 1970s, Oregon was one of many states that were already beginning to liberalize their abortion law. So Roe v. Wade was kind of just a reflection of that movement. And what that decision came up with the trimester doctrine. So in the first trimester, abortion is illegal and states cannot infringe on that right, even though, as I'm assuming we'll discuss in a little bit, that doesn't stop states from trying. Well, yeah, well, let's discuss now. How do states' rights play into abortion legislation? So Oregon women have the right to obtain abortions. There's no restrictions. A lot of states now have age restrictions. If you are a minor, you have to notify and get um, consent from your parents. A lot of states have 24, 48-hour um, waiting periods after a woman makes the decision to obtain an abortion. Wait, you just need to wait and think on that decision for a little bit. So basically what a lot of my research has been on is comparing national movements to um, the Oregon legislation. So like I've said, Oregon has no restrictions on file right now, but there have been four ballot measures throughout history that have been proposed by Christian right groups to try to enact legislation. And I am particularly interested in the timing of these proposed legislations because they always tend to follow big Supreme Court decision in where abortion rights are kind of front and center on the public's mind and where a lot of media coverage is surrounding that decision. So in 1977, the Hyde Amendment was passed, which forbids federal Medicaid expenditures for being used on abortion. And shortly after that, in 1978, the Oregon governor at the time, um, Bob Straub, he called an emergency meeting where he specifically allocated state monies to be used for low-income women who need abortion. And then shortly after that, in 1978, as kind of a pushback against that, the Christian right group titled Oregonians Opposed to State-Sponsored Abortions proposed ballot measure 7 in the November election, which would have um, prohibited state money from being spent on abortion services and programs promoting abortion. And there have been a couple other times throughout history. What we see throughout time since Roe v. Wade is a, is a sort of chipping away at this right, slowly enacting um, legislation and further legislation to limit the ability for women to get these services. Webster v. Reproductive Health Services in 1989, which was a challenge to a Missouri statute, which prohibited the dispersal of abortion information um, for women. That was upheld because it said that it didn't infringe on women's access to the procedure and it didn't restrict Roe in any way. Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992 is also a big one, which was further the restrictions on the procedure. So basically, um, it's widening the door for states to expand their rights on restricting the procedure. And 1992's Planned Parenthood v. Casey, um, that's the case that established the undue burden um, doctrine, where it says as long as the states don't impose an undue burden on women seeking an abortion, then Roe is still intact. So that's how waiting periods and um, 
other legislation have been able to be upheld, even though fundamentally they do uh, restrict women's access to the procedure. What are some of the main arguments for regulating the abortion practice? Like how have those arguments kind of evolved over time? So states have established an interest in the fetus. That's how they are able, um, before the Supreme Court, you have to establish an interest in protecting the fetus before you can even go forth in your lawsuit. So by presenting an interest in the life and the liberty of the fetus, that's how states are able to move forward in these legislations and more um, recently this year in 2016 we got the decision of Hellerstadt v. Whole Woman's Health out of Texas and those are TRAP laws. TRAP stands for Targeted Regulation of Abortion Providers and those laws have actually been struck down in many states because of the undue burden doctrine and these regulations actually had nothing to do with the procedure of abortion itself. It wasn't a waiting period thing or a trimester kind of um, legislation. It was um, on the abortion providers and the buildings themselves. For example, um, Texas had a requirement that your hallways had to be so many feet wide and you had to have so many different medications and have the exact had to have ambulatory um, services in your clinic regardless of the fact that a lot of abortions nowadays are is, is taking a pill but you had to have surgical, and ambulatory services in your clinic. And that's pretty expensive. A lot of um, abortion clinics were shut down because of these trap laws. And it's all put forward in interest of the fetus and interest of women's health. But if you look at the professionals in the field, these restrictions have nothing to do with women's health. The size of a hallway really doesn't have anything to do with public health. It's interesting. It's like it's like giving the uh, the fetus, in a way, citizenship prior yes. to birth. Yes. Have there been any cases where they said that that's not constitutional because the Constitution, at least concerning the 14th Amendment, um, to my knowledge, that amendment gives citizenship to a person who is born or naturalized in the United States. But if a person's not born, how are they... I'm seeing a disconnect here. I think that off the top of my head, what I can think of is just that state interest that states have proposed that they have in the fetus in a potential citizen in society, the work that that potential citizen could do. And what's particularly striking in the 1973 decision, um, Justice O'Connor's opinion, she just kind of, she briefly touches on this. I can't think of the wording exactly. But she discusses how women's citizenship outweighs the potential citizenship of the fetus. Right. That's another factor, too, is you have to consider the woman is a citizen as well. So it seems like the main arguments are coming from a moral standpoint. Definitely. And in Oregon, when you see um, this type of legislation proposed, it is moral and kind of evangelical movement that is 
moving forward. Um, one of the most well-known movement is the Ballot Measure 10 in 1990, which um, which followed the Webster v. Reproductive Health Services Supreme Court decision. So Ballot Measure 10 in 1990 stated that minors must give at least two days notice to their parents before obtaining an abortion. And this was sponsored by a really well-known Christian right group, Oregon Citizens Alliance. A lot of people are familiar with the OCA because of their work with Ballot Measure 9 in 1992, which proposed Oregon constitutional amendment, which would have put homosexuality as an unnatural behavior, and it would have allowed for discrimination in housing and in hiring practices against um, the LGBTQ community. OCA is pretty well known in Oregon. And they backed uh, the ballot measure 10 in 1990. And they are similar to the groups that are proposing these legislations across the country, very focused on the moral and religious standards of America, American society. Right, which are evolving. You would think they would be changing over time. And it's interesting to note that in the birth control movement, which we'll talk about a little bit here in a minute, but there were people on the side of promoting birth control on moral grounds for in a, kind of like a, a eugenics. Um, in order to protect a certain race, they would need to control births of other races. Even coming at it from a moral point of view there when it comes to birth control, beyond just the medical reasons for why a woman should or should not be birthing a child. Let's move forward just a little bit into the birth control movement because that's kind of unique in Oregon. Historian Linda Gordon wrote in her book, Woman's Body, Woman's Right, quote, the reemergence of birth control as a respectable practice in the last century was a process of changing sexual standards, largely produced by women's struggle for freedom, end quote. Gordon is recognized in the feminist community for her work in the social history of women's rights, including social history of, of birth control. I was fortunate enough to attend the symposium regulating birth in Oregon, uh, presented by the OHS one year ago today, which is interesting. <laughs> um, speakers at that symposium spoke on the history of birth in Oregon, the ideas, experiences, and meanings of birth. Uh, the Oregon Historical Quarterly printed a special issue this past summer influenced by the symposium, which I recommend listeners check out. It even includes the OHQ's first historic comic. You want to see a, a comic on um, Margaret Sanger and uh coming through Oregon and being arrested for promoting uh, birth control pamphlets. You should check that out. You can usually find a free copy of the OHQ at your local library to read. PSU students, staff, faculty have access to digital copies through the Millar Library. In her article titled The Regulating Birth, Locating Power at the Intersection of Private and Public in Oregon History, uh, guest editor Kristen Hancock writes, quote, social, political, and economic beliefs and systems shape the way communities regulate birth. As such, these processes of regulation affect racial, gender, and socioeconomic class inequalities. That's kind of touching on what I was speaking on just a moment ago. Uh, the symposium and resulting special issue didn't really focus on abortion legislation, but the birth control movement and birthing rights in Oregon, particularly midwifery's history in Oregon, 
which you mentioned earlier, too. In your research so far, do you recognize any kind of underlying themes between legislations concerning different types of reproductive rights, abortion legislation, birth control legislation, any any thing that you've seen the changing standards of sexual and reproductive rights influencing legislation. So definitely that's something that I need to look into more. I have plans to look more into the history of midwifery to expand my understanding of women's choice regarding um, pregnancy and birth and birth control. What I can say is that you're right. The notions of who gets to mother in American society has been evolving so understandably. Um, communities of color and um, commun- communities um, of, of lower socioeconomic status have been skeptical of birth control and the abortion movement because there's a history of forced sterilization and you mentioned eugenics and the idea that um, only desirable women should be producing offspring. So with the kind of expansion of women's roles in society and their assertion of political and civil rights, we see the expansion of acceptable birth control and seems that abortion is obviously still a contested issue as a expression of that civil right. Are you finding that as you're researching your views, your perceptions are changing in any way? Definitely. So when I first started researching, I was particularly interested in prominent Oregon figures such as Oregon Governor Bob Straub who called that emergency meeting after the Hyde Amendment and um, Supreme Court Justice Betty Roberts and Senator Marie Newberger, Gretchen Kafori. I mean, Oregon is really filled with a really amazing political figures who asserted their support of women's reproductive choice. But throughout my research, particularly with these four ballot measures throughout Oregon history, I've really found community involvement has been incredible. I mean, the Christian right movement um, throughout these four ballot measures have been extremely organized and well-funded. And um, looking through their records, you see really huge donations from multiple people throughout the community. So for um, women's rights activists in Oregon to mobilize against these movements have been fantastic. And with the support of well-known prominent political figures in Oregon, the movements have been more visible, definitely. Um, But the grassroots movements, such as the No on 8 and 10 campaign in 1990 against that abortion regulation, um, really did a lot to help protect women's reproductive rights. And I guess um, Oregon's legislation system does have that in its favor. The fact that citizens actually have to vote before a law is passed in the state. So it really is a race for the two sides to kind of reach as many people as possible and be organized and be mobilized. And I have been surprised, I mean, not surprised, but kind of surprised to see how successful they were throughout these campaigns. And, you know, 
since the first one was in 1978. That's not that long ago. And to have to keep mobilizing and reorganizing, keeping this movement going has been really interesting to read about. So what's next? Where are you going from here? Where's your research heading? So I definitely need to look more into um, the ways in which the Oregon legislature works, definitely. Um, more into the history of midwifery in Oregon. I feel like I want to kind of trace the history of the birth control movement back and use the birth control movement as kind of the backbone of my piece and compare it out nationally to what was happening elsewhere with these major Supreme Court decisions and in other states who um, have enacted restrictive legislation. So I plan on looking um, at OHSU and Women's Health Archives. I have a lot of work to do, but I'm really excited about it. Right, right. you're on the road and with a projection to graduate next summer, which is wonderful. It's fantastic. Congratulations. <laughs> we'll see, though. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we will see, but still, if at all you ever want to come back on the show, please uh, let me know. We'll schedule time, have you come back into the studio. I do appreciate you coming in today and, and talking with me. No, so thank, thank you. you for having me. It was, it was an experience. <laughs> <laughs> sure was. <laughs> That's uh, all the time we have, unfortunately. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. As a final note, I want to stress that the story doesn't end after a legislation passes or fails or a court case is decided. So much more can be learned from the people and events of our past, including how they influence our present. I encourage you to see the history for yourself and find out how it does or does not relate to your own experience. Then share your experience. Uh, local historians and historical organizations constantly seek and provide opportunities for community members to share their life experiences. Many of their services and events are free to the public. If nothing else, talk to a graduate student and contribute to some new scholarship. Beyond Footnotes is sponsored by the PSU Department of History and was recorded in the studios of KPSU. You can find information about this episode on our show page at kpsu.org and on SoundCloud. I want to sincerely thank you listeners. Your support and encouragement is very much appreciated. I hope you'll keep listening to me. If you'd like to help the show out even more, there are a number of ways you can do that. Tell a friend, subscribe or rate us on iTunes, and follow the show on Twitter or Facebook. You can find all of our past shows on iTunes on soundcloud.com slash beyondfootnotes and at kpsu.org. Stay up to date about upcoming episodes on Facebook and Twitter. Signing off, I'm Lindsay Smith. Have a great week.
you preach.